0: We're in Genesis 3 this morning, and we ended up last time um, talking about the serpent, uh, the serpent really enticing Adam and Eve, both of them, and with the idea that they would become like God if they ate from the, the one tree that God told them not to, or, or one of the two trees that God told them not to. And of course, they, they do exactly what we tell them not to do, because they're all two-year-olds, Right? Uh, yeah. yeah, if you've been around two-year-olds, you understand what I'm saying. You go, you know, I tell my son Grayson, no, 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 get down off the chair. And he just looks at me and smiles, you know. Uh, and, and that's what Adam and Eve did. You know, they were enticed. They were, they were challenged, and they accepted the wrong challenge here. And, and God, is, God is around looking for them. And, uh, you know, he asks uh, them, what happened and of course, they start the blame game, right? We we love to do that. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, where we blame everybody but ourselves. It, it's it's very uh, very different in our society when somebody says, "You know what? I did that. I messed up, and and I shouldn't have done that." Uh, how many times has that happened lately? You know, and uh, you know, usually we we try to blame it on this or that or life. You know, life just got me, and you know, I you know, we try to blame it on everything. But it says here in verse nine, "But the Lord God called to the man." Where are you? He answered, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." And he said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how you know this isn't like God going, "Well, well, where are you?" This is God going, "I know what's going on, so what?" You know, "Hey, where are you?" You know, kind of you talk to a child and and, and so forth, and you know exactly what they've done, but you're giving them a chance to admit. You're giving them t- a chance to engage here. And this is what God's doing. It's not like God's going, I don't know what's going on. Okay, so don't put that on God. He, he's try- you know, he knows what's going on. And He says, uh, here here, verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman you put here, the woman you put here, God, it's all your fault. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and of all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat the dust all the days of your life, and man will always be afraid of you. Okay, wait, no, I added that part. You know, I, what's interesting is... I'll get to that in a second, but I'll tell you a little story in a second. It'll be kind of fun. But, but here God pronounces the curse on the serpent, okay? Satan took the form of a certain, uh, serpent, and he deceived Eve. And the word serpent in, the, in verse 1 of, of chapter 3 is a Hebrew word, and, and the root of the word means shining one. So we think of snake crawling on ground, right? No, 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 no. This was Satan before god cursed him so he was the shining one he was the uh you know uh, we don't know what he exactly looked like we don't know what serpents looked like at, the, at that time it could be an animal that was beautiful and shining we don't know it could have had some sorts of legs it could have walked differently you know it could have been upright and and bright and and shining we just don't know but all of this changed when god cursed the serpent. It was reduced to slithering on its belly, eating dust, so to speak, turning really into a disgusting creature, right? Now, I went to the zoo yesterday, and uh, as we went through the, the you know, where all, the, the, you know, we're all the, the, the snakes and all that and, and the poisonous frogs and all that, I'm very happy they're behind glass, right? Aren't you? So then last night, uh, the last two nights, we're sitting there going, oh, it's the last couple of nights of nice weather. You know what I'm saying? So we did a, a movie night at our house on Friday night for the neighborhood and, you know, have everybody over, and it's a lot of fun. And we hadn't put anything away, of course, other than putting it in our garage. So last night, we decided to put it all out again and, and do another movie. So we're watching the movie Peter Rabbit, okay? And Peter Rabbit's all about what? Oh, don't, don't kill the poor little rabbits. Don't eat the right, you don't, it, they're precious. And we're sitting there watching a movie, and all of a sudden this black and yellow striped snake comes slithering out from underneath my gate by the trash cans, right next to where the popcorn machine are, and one of the kid goes, snake! So me being a man, what do I do? I run the other direction. No, no, no. I'm thinking, okay, well, it's probably not a poisonous snake, but then again, I don't want this thing around my house. I don't want it in my backyard. I got almost a three-year-old. You know, he's just going to go, oh, you know, and it's going to strike him whether it's poisonous or not. I don't want that to happen. So I get a shovel, and I'm over there. I'm like, kids, go away, you know. So here I'm watching a movie. It says, don't hurt animals, and I'm over there going, wham, wham, (laughs) killing the snake, you know. Now, I'm sorry for snake lovers. If you love snakes, I apologize. But I have two kids and a neighborhood uh, full of kids. And it's like, ah, you know, that protective mode comes on. But that's what's happened. The curse has changed the snake into a slithering animal that is against man. Uh, You know, again, snakes are not a great thing. Uh, uh, Yeah, you know, they're slithering. they're, They're on their belly. It's a curse from God. You have to watch out for snakes. A couple of weeks ago, I also read an article where a man saw a snake in the middle of the road, and he swerved in Alabama, and he thought it was a king snake, okay? So he gets out, and he goes, oh, my brother loves, you know, my brother loves snakes, so, so let, me, let me catch it for him. The problem was it was a coral snake, okay? Deadly snake, one of the most venomous, you know, snakes in North America. So he grabs it by the tail, it whips around, and bites him on the head, uh, hand, and then it bit him two more times, so now the snake is bit him three times he's fighting for his life. If he, you know man if he lives he's in a hospital. If he lives he will probably have brain damage, nerve damage among other things. It's a vile creature. So now you understand why I took the shovel and killed the snake. You see my say <laughs> what I'm saying? Originally beautiful. Now not so much. So he says to the serpent, which is Satan, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is what we call the, the, it's a big word, it's Gillum or something like that. It really means the first gospel. This is the first hint of God's plan for the future. This is the first hint of it all, of Jesus coming. So the offspring, we see the offspring mentioned, of, and we have Satan, the offspring of Satan, we have the offspring of the woman. And this represents the family of Satan and the family of God. In 1 John 3, I'll show you what this means here. 1 John 3.10, it says, This is how we know who are the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not, what, uh, d- does not do what is right is not God's child nor anyone who does not love his brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love each other. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So here you see the enmity between good and evil. Between God's children trying to live righteously and those who are the children of Satan who live unrighteously, that do not even admit that there is a God. It's sad. The darkness doesn't like the light. It starts right here in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. The crush of the head means, means utter defeat here. That an offspring from the woman will crush him, will utterly defeat Satan. But in the middle of all this, Satan would bruise his heel. And we're talking about the bruising of the heel. We're talking about the, the physical suffering and the mental suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. But Jesus was victorious over what? Sin? Death? And Satan, he's victorious over it all. Initially, the the devil had, had thought he won. He is the accuser, but through all the accusations, Jesus is what innocent. I mean, Jesus died for three days. We don't know exactly where he went. There's it's called Abraham's bosom. Uh, did he go down and preach to you know all those that had gone before him down in uh, what they call the the Sheol or Sheol, um, depending on how you say it. You know the the place where the righteous and the unrighteous go and so forth. We don't know exactly what all happened, but we know that he was down there and we know that Satan celebrated because he thought he had won. Jesus is dead. Yet three days later, what happened? He rose from the grave, amen? He defeated death. And the fact that that he says the offspring of the woman, and this is a reference to to the virgin birth, and one of the main... One of the main ways that Satan likes to attack Christianity is to dispute what? The virgin birth. Isaiah prophesied this in uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. Hundreds of years later. He said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. This is a very important doctrine that we need to understand and believe in. It's because it's being attacked from outside the church and inside the church sometimes too. There are liberal theologians that, that will deny the virgin birth, if you can believe that. They're teaching in some seminaries that the virgin birth did not really happen. And they're going back to the word in, in Hebrew I mean in Isaiah seven fourteen and, and the Hebrew word there is Alma. And and the word um, they, they say the word only means a young woman of marriageable age. Therefore, it doesn't mean necessarily a virgin, just a young woman that can be married. That's what they're trying to teach. However, the word Alma is never used in the Old Testament referring to a married woman, only a young, unmarried woman. So this leaves two options a woman who was conceived, or a woman who conceived a child out of wedlock, or a virgin. Those are two options there. But, I, but Isaiah says the virgin. And in Hebrews, he's using the words very precise. This is something special, he says, something unique. It's never been done before. So if we're talking about a woman who was single and got pregnant, it happens, it's not the end of the world. We, you know, we deal with that. I mean, you know, that's, that's how life is. But that's not a sign of something new, is it? I mean, that's been happening since the beginning of time right you engage with me okay good I'm trying to prep you for next week you know but this is not a sign of uniqueness at all i mean that's immorality it's a forgivable thing but it's clearly no what not what isaiah was talking about now when matthew and matthew 123 quoted from isaiah 724 in the greek he chose the word parthenos parthenos It actually means, without exception, every time it's used, virgin. So anyone who attacks the virgin birth is literally biblically incorrect. I don't care if you're teaching in seminary or not. You're biblically incorrect. And why is this so important? Because it's an essential doctrine for us. If Jesus was virgin born, then he can lead a, a sinless life. If he wasn't virgin-born, then he wasn't born sinless because the sin, the Bible says, is passed from the father to the child in the Bible. It's the way it is. It goes on, it says, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. Thank God we have medicines nowadays, right? Now, I'm not going to go through all that but I know it still hurts, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that. But man, imagine back then with no pain meds, okay? So, it will make your, your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So in Genesis three fifteen through 18 God pronounces the curse on first Satan and secondly the woman. He says your desire will be for your husband. Now, we think, oh, this is so enduring. This is so sweet. Your desire will be for your husband. Oh, that's not what it's talking about at all. You know, we think, oh, she just doesn't want him gone too long. Hurry back, honey. But that, that's not a curse. That's, you know, <laughs> the word desire here in the Hebrew is, is to seek Control. It's the same words in Genesis 4-7 where God is talking about Cain, where, where Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices before the Lord and Abel you know, uh, followed what the Lord said and his sacrifice was acceptable. But Cain decided, no, I'll do what suits me. I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to do it the way God wants me to do it. So therefore, I'll do it this way. And he brings the sacrifice and God says, I don't accept that. God tells him, he says here in Genesis four seven. He says, "If you do what is right, will will you not be accepted? In other words, the sacrifice. But if you not do what is, uh, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it." God is simply uh, is simply saying to him, "Sin is going to seek to control and dominate your life." Now, any of us ever experienced that? See what I'm saying? Sin is out there ready to seek and to control and dominate. And we are not to let it. We're supposed to fight back. And how are Christians supposed to do this? We're not supposed to allow sin to control us. How are we to do this? With the power of the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus, we get this extra power in us. And unfortunately, some of us leave that inside of us and we leave it dormant. And it just sits there. Oh, it may be beautiful, but it's never really active. We need to activate the Holy Spirit in our life because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can hold off sin. Now that should get an amen somewhere. Thank you. God is applying the same thing, the whole desire thing, into marriage. He is saying, Adam, because you have listened to your wife in this sin, You didn't obey me, and you and Eve have fallen here. The way things have been up to this point are now going to be different. In verse 17, he says uh, to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat your food, or eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So not only does Adam need to work for for their food and provide for the family, he also has his marriage affected, his relationship. She will want to dominate and control him. But God also says to the man later in the the scriptures, you are responsible and you are going to be held uh, held accountable as the head of your family. So now we see problems creep into the marriage. God set it up for a man to be in charge of the family. So there's conflict in marriage. It doesn't matter how we feel about this. Okay? I mean, some men are so docile, they just let, you know, whatever you say, honey, okay? And some men are so dominating, they never take what the, what the wife says into account. It doesn't really matter how we feel about this, it's how God set things up. God ordained marriage, And the man is supposed to be in charge of the family. Now, we've talked about this. We've talked about what it means to be in charge of the family, okay? It doesn't mean ignoring your wife. It doesn't mean dominating over every little thing. It doesn't mean uh, what you say goes always. It doesn't mean those things. And definitely doesn't mean physical contact. And You know, I'm just going to, she doesn't listen to me. You know, no, no, absolutely not. Uh, God ordained uh, marriage. It's supposed to mean... Strong leadership and godly control over the, fa- uh, over the family. Not overbearing, not rude, not, not consulting your wife. We are living in a very confused world. And it's hard to talk about God's, uh, the, you know, the, the roles He's given us because everyone starts to freak out. But we stick to the Word of God and we follow what God desires, then it all works out the way it's supposed to. But if we fight God, what does it become? Really difficult. We see this battle waging in our world today, in our society. The fall and the curse brought a lot of difficulty into society. A lot of problems. A godly Christian marriage is is the only marriage that represents how God designed us. And it comes through the power of grace and mercy and the Holy Spirit. And when a person gives their, their heart to Christ, we become a new creation and we live in our marriage in this new creation and it becomes a strong, unbelievable marriage that can be an inspiration to other people. Unfortunately, nowadays as I talk to uh, different people, I get to know different uh, people, you know, it, it's, it's odd nowadays to say, oh, you just celebrated your 50th wedding anniversary? You know, my wife and I were coming up on our 25th wedding anniversary, and, and it's sad to say that there's many marriages that don't last that long, because we've decided, no, I'm right, they're wrong. And there's, I know there's a lot of nuances in there, but it's one of our major problems in marriage. We're so concerned about how the other person is doing in our marriage, how the other person should change. Have you ever thought about that? Man, if If my wife would just not do this. (laughs) Okay, let me flip that over. I got a lot of looks. If my husband would just do this or not do this. And we think, oh, well, if they would just do that, it would solve it all. Well, guess what? God is not really concerned about your spouse in a sense. Now, he is. God's concerned about both sides. But when it comes to you, God's saying, don't focus on them. Focus on yourself. He's concerned about how you act in your marriage. You're the one that God wants to work on. And if you allow God to work on you, your marriage most likely will improve. When we willingly allow God to work in our life, we become more like Jesus. That's what the scriptures say, right? Right? We become more like Jesus every day when we do those things. And if we allow God to work in our life, our marriages will improve. They will. The heart of all marriage problems, I believe, come from pride and selfishness. And if we move toward the enemy, it will destroy our marriages because our pride and our selfishness takes over and we will always focus on the other person always see our marriage problems aren't really marriage problems our marriage problems are really lordship problems we have a problem following our lord we have a problem becoming christian and saying i'm going to follow god and we have a problem with that and that's reflected in our marriages and if we act toward our spouses like god told us to act our marriages would be a whole lot healthier And you can only do your part. You follow the Lord, then allow the Lord to deal with your spouse. See, the devil knows how to push our buttons. Actually, a lot more than our spouse knows how to push our buttons. He knows how to divide us. Satan doesn't want our marriages to to last. He likes division. Don't allow him to divide it. See, the real enemy is not our spouse. The real enemy is Satan and sin. And we need to remember that because we're at war with the devil, not each other. But in any war, there's a certain percentage of casualties as a result of what? We call it friendly fire. In the heat of the battle, the one you love, you mistake your friend, you mistake your spouse for the enemy, and you start firing at them, the results can be deadly because it's spiritual warfare. Let's not hurt our spouses or our mates with with friendly fire. I mean, you're supposed to be on the same side, right? That's why you came together. Let's fight against the real enemy, and that's the devil. Don't find yourself taking shots at each other, wounding one another. Don't destroy the person you love. In Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us there is a bigger enemy. And it's interesting that he taught this right after he talked about marriage, okay? He talks about all this marriage stuff, and then he goes right into this. And I don't, did he do it purposely? I don't know. But families and marriages get the most attacks if Satan can divide the family. And that's the bigger enemy. Satan attacked the first marriage on earth. Then he attacked the family through Cain and Abel. Divide and conquer. Satan hates God. He figured out he can't hurt God, right? I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. So he attacks those whom God loves, right? You and I. And he does it in multiple ways. And Satan's plan is to hurt God. And Satan is efficient. He doesn't have to work hard. Just get people fighting And he just sits back and he watches. It's selfishness and pride. And marriages and families are the greatest tragedy in all of this. Think of it like this. If you have a tree, the roots are God, and the marriages are the fruit. As long as the trunk is attached between the two, things work out well, right? The fruit keeps growing. So how do you destroy the The tree. You try to sever the tree from its roots. You try to cut it down in the middle. And that will destroy everything. I mean, the fruit just kind of shrivels up and dies. This is what Satan's doing. He has secularized us. He has severed our roots from God. Everything good that God has designed, Satan has attacked. I mean, wow, I mean it's so frustrating sometimes. The real battle is the survival of your fellowship with God. That's the real battle. The problem in marriages are really a symptom of our relationship with God. The main problem is not being in the right relationship with God. And if you fix this, the things of God will flow into your marriage again. You need to ask for forgiveness and get back in fellowship with God. So the first curse was on Satan, and then on Eve, and then on Adam. Here we go, verse 17 it says, To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because, you, uh, because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. Now only. Only, you know, people only see like, you know, what they want to see a lot of times. We're all like that in relationships, right? We see because you listen to your wife and we go, you know, some people are like, see, I shouldn't listen to my wife. And they think that's how they rule over their family. And they don't. That's not. I'm the head of family, and it shows that I shouldn't listen. And if you feel that way, you've taken it way out of context here. Because later God tells Abram, listen to the voice of your wife. You see what I'm saying? You've got to take stuff in context. All I'm saying is the whole don't listen to your wife you know, if she tells you something. Uh, you know, that's just not biblical. In verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to your wife... And ate from the uh, fruit of the tree about which I commanded, you will not eat. You must not eat from it. This this is the same as when Jesus said, "If you don't hate your father and mother, you are not worthy of Me." And we go, "What? Because the scriptures say I'm supposed to honor my father and mother, right?" And hopefully you should shake your heads, yes, right? Okay. So it's honor. But then He says, "If you don't hate them, you're not worthy of Me." Well, he's saying in Genesis and in Matthew, don't allow people who you love to govern your life, is what he's saying. I'm supposed to govern your life, God says. He goes on here and he says, "'Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground.'" since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return now when adam ate the forbidden fruit it caused a curse upon all of mankind and the earth physical death is is, is the ultimate result and this disobedience that he did brought forth death and death has brought much sorrow into the world i mean god didn't want death in the world I mean, think about it. remember in John 11, where, where Lazarus dies, and I mean, Jesus loves Lazarus, and Jesus shows up four days too late, and, and they would hire mourners to go um, uh, to the tomb, and literally they would hire ladies to go scream at the tomb, okay? Because, I mean, doing it for days. And, and Jesus shows up and they're screaming, but before Jesus gets there, I mean this is pretty depressing. And here comes Jesus. He arrives at Bethany and Martha runs out, and she bows down at her feet, gives him honor, and then she quickly rebukes him. Why weren't you here? Why weren't you here? Where were you? And her grief is just overwhelming right here. And and so a while later, Mary comes in and does the same exact thing. And then they bring Jesus to the tomb, and it says that Jesus, Jesus groaned in his spirit. And the Greek word here, for groaned," is, is a very strong, it's like a, a violent displeasure. Now why would, why would he act like this? He knows where he's at. It's because he's lost a good friend. No. He knows he's fixed and raise him from the dead. I believe it's because God designed us that we should never face death. But God honored our free will, and it brought a lot of sorrow. But Jesus one day will wipe away every tear in the end. Adam's sin didn't just bring a curse to mankind, but everything. He tells Satan, cursed are you above all, then signifies that everything was cursed. And, and everything that, that is around this whole world is cursed because of that in Romans 8.20 it says for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God all of creation was affected because of this when Eve said take and eat it changed everything You know, it's interesting that Jesus uses the same verbiage when it comes to the time of communion take and eat, for this is my body. And that changed everything too, because Jesus offered salvation at that point. See, God's plan wasn't just to bring man back to innocence. He planned to bring us back to something much greater than that. We have gained more in Christ than we ever have lost in Adam. See, it wasn't just a reset. We are now God's adopted children. And it goes on in verse 20, it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And Eve means the giver of life. It's almost like a title, not necessarily her name, okay? Okay. And, and Adam named her Eve, and, and God just, just said from the woman will come a redeemer. And I think Adam is, is almost like cluing in to what God had just said, and, and God has greater plans for salvation here. In verse 21 it says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And we talked about this last time, but so I'm not going to go back into it a lot, but I do want to say there's only two religions in the world. In a sense, a religion of leaves... And the religion of skins, okay? So follow me here. Leaves represent a religion that, that works, you know, our works, our hands, that have to do to cover ourselves. In other words, to get salvation, to, to get redeemed, to, to get back to where I'm okay around other people, I have to work at it. But what did God do? He brought a substitute. To cover our, sh- our, our guilt and our shame that we had before God. He killed an animal right there. And basically almost like saying, you both should die, but I'm going to kill this other animal. And he killed them in, in their place. And God used that as skin. Now, I don't know, did God leave it out for a few days? I don't know if God did the tanning stuff for the, you know, the animal hide instantly or if he left it out... You know, so, for so many days, and Adam and Eve, every time they walked by that area, you know, maybe God come down and walk with them like He did every night, and He brought them by that, you know, that area as that skin tan. I don't know. But I do know that He covered them. He covered them through death. God did all the work. I don't think God said, hey, can you give, give me a hand in doing this? I think he did all the work, and it was a gift from God. And it was a foreshadowing of what would happen. In Isaiah 61.10, it says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me, uh, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. It hmm. goes on in verse 22, and it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he says that man has has become like one of us. And who is God talking to here? He's talking to himself. Okay? This is the same as when he said, let us make mankind. The us is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. Angels didn't create. So he's talking to himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Eve thought this was a good thing. This is why she took a bite you know, out of the, we call it an apple or whatever it was. And it happened just as the devil said it would. Her eyes were open to good and evil. Her innocence gone. And this is God's standard here, good and evil. And we should know the difference. And it's interesting that Satan is now attacking that, where good is now evil and evil is now good in our society. Things that, that once were, were not acceptable are now acceptable and people look at us cr- as crazy people when we go, no, 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 that's not right for society. And they're like, oh, you're one of those fundamentalists or you're, you know, you're, oh, you're one of those believers, you know, as my son's learning the, the air quotes, believers, you know. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes today. And that's where we're at. It goes on and says, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God made a tree, a a, a tree called the tree of life. You know, he created a tree that bears a a fruit that's eaten that, that will somehow sustain the body indefinitely or for a period of time. We're not really sure he talks about it again in Revelations uh, 2. He says here, whoever, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there, you know, what he's talking about here is the eternal Jerusalem at this point. The tree of life is actually going to be there. And in Revelations 22, talking about the eternal state here, John's kind of vision he had of heaven, it says here, then the angels showed me the river, of, uh, the river of the water of life, as crystal is clear, flowing from the throne of God and of the, th- of the Lamb down in the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So the tree of life is something bigger that we don't completely understand. It has Healing properties that possibly keep us alive, eternally young, I'm not sure. But, you know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, and you have the 12 different types of fruit and all that. You know, I don't know exactly what it means, because we don't have all the information. All I know is it's something that's very important. Verse 14, it goes on, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates in the city and the washing of the robes. That's talking about accepting Jesus into the life. So let's finish up in verse twenty-three and twenty-four. It says, "So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which the Lord had taken, had been taken. Uh, he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and flaming and a flaming sword flashing back and forth." to guard the way to the tree of life. And the cher- the word cherubim here, the i m means plural. So you have cherubs, and you have cherubims, okay? That means a plural. This is like soldier versus soldiers. And these these cherubim are the highest ranking angelic beings that God has created. So there's at least two or more at the entrance of the garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from getting back into the garden so they don't eat from the tree of life and live in this fallen condition forever. If all God was trying to do was keep Adam and Eve out, would he need like the special forces angels to be in charge there? No. No, he wouldn't. I mean, these guys were the best of the best. In fact, in Hezekiah's day, Hezekiah said that God sent a lower angel, okay, not the top of the top, And he wiped out 185,000 Assyrians one night after dinner. One. Okay. I mean, these are tough creatures. God protects the tree, I think, to keep Satan from getting in. He doesn't want that tree destroyed. He guards the way to the tree of life. We're not exactly sure what it's all about. But if Satan could destroy the tree of life, then I think that death couldn't be destroyed defeated mankind would have been subjected to to death for for that point forward and this is part of the way that, that god is showing a way back for us and he guards it with cherubim we see the mercy of god right here man has blown it completely he literally the word there when it says he drove them out you know drive them out of the you know it says there he uh, what he uh, drive adam out he literally like drive is a tough word that means like you know somebody you know kicking you out like they're following you just kicking you you know i mean that's a tough word there but we see the mercy of god here he protects the tree of life because someday it's going to be needed and it comes from the redeemer and the tree of life is part of the plan in the end and the cross of christ provides a way for us to enjoy that tree of life because we are covered our robes, we, we put on the robe of Christ so therefore we can enter into the new Jerusalem with Jesus and enjoy the presence of God. And that is a great thing. So I think that's, uh, I've gone too over time for today. So why don't we stand and, and the worship team will come and we will finish up. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're so thankful that you chose a path for us to get back to you. You could have wiped us all out and started over, and, but you didn't want to do that. You, you tried to preserve the relationship, and you provided a way. And that way started from the very beginning, and we're thankful for that, Lord. I pray for our marriages that are out there, that you would strengthen them, that you would guide them, that you would allow strong marriages for today, for this world to see, because they desperately need to see it. We pray that in our relationship with you, Lord, that we not toss you out the window, that we keep you right there with us and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and to to awaken us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you and watch over you this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.